Lovely to see you here at church. I'm uh, the uh, minister here, senior pastor. If I haven't met you yet, do come and say hi over a cup of tea or coffee, uh, some morning tea afterwards. Um, it's funny, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to be a church with this strange yellow thing hanging over in the sky? Uh, how good is that? In fact, there's a family at our evening service at 5 o'clock, uh, Luke and Kat, who have little baby Caleb. And uh, briefly, last Sunday, this funny yellow thing also emerged. And uh, they took Caleb outside because he was six weeks old and said, here's the sun. You haven't seen this before. So, <laughs> isn't it great to, uh, to be together with God's people and to do it on a beautiful day in such peace and safety? Um, but I have a confession to make for you. I feel confession is good for the soul, and it's cheaper for me than therapy to do this here, so uh, I'll get it off my chest now. Um, I feel completely, utterly inadequate to the task before me uh, this morning. There we go. I feel better for saying that. Um, I'm sure you don't, (laughs) because you're thinking, what the heck? Uh, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Why? uh, what I want to speak, what I, what I want us to think about today, or what I, what I, the task ahead of me today and the task of this text is, is that we might know the love of God. And I just know, 20 years of pastoral ministry, I just know I can't make you experience the love of God. And that's really annoying. Uh, I like being able to do stuff, and I just know this is not something I can do. It's a profound... I mean, I don't know. It's a work that you have to do. You have to do with God. God has to graciously do with us. Uh, And why I feel so inadequate for it is not that I just can't do it, which I can't, but um, it's the most important thing you'll ever know or experience in your life. Karl Barth, the great uh, theologian of last century, you may not have heard of him. Uh, if you're a theology nerd or a philosophy nerd, you will have heard of uh, Karl Barth. Brilliant mind, wrote a thing called the Church Dogmatics, which was like this massive tome of books, six million words. Uh, just an extraordinary intellectual feat. This great thinker, towards the end of his life, an interviewer asked Karl Barth, he said, uh, you know, Dr. Barth, in all your great learning of theology and Christianity over all your life, what's the single greatest truth you've ever learned. And uh, Bart looked at him and he said, uh, this is a truth I learned on my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, It is the most important truth. It's the most central truth of Christianity. It's the truth that is most life-giving. It's what we all need more than anything else. So if you're here this morning and you're not particularly religious, you're here visiting, checking stuff out, you're you're on a sort of a journey of interest, Let me tell you, you know, don't you, that that being loved is the most important thing in our lives. I mean, after we've had food and shelter and all those basic things. But without love, we just don't flourish, do we? Without love, our lives are empty. My life is empty. Without love, we become bitter and twisted, empty. And and you can see this no matter what your religious persuasion when we look around in our world and we see all the crazy lengths people will go to to find an experience of love. We do do weird things, bonkers things. We do self-destructive things just because we think that in those things we will find love. So 
It's the most important truth in Christianity. It is the thing you and I need more than anything else. And it's the thing that at a human level I'm utterly powerless to give you. (laughs) Isn't that great? Don't you want my job? But, But I think this story will give it to us. I think this text of scripture will show it to us. And so why don't you pray with me and just pray for God to help me and God to help us that as we think about this story, that, that in ways that totally transcend my human ability to speak and your human ability to listen, that somehow God will actually give each of us a deep sense of his love for us this morning. Wouldn't that be great? I know I need it desperately and I need help to help you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, pour your spirit out on us as a church. As we meet in this room this morning, may you uh, pour, your, pour the love of God the Father into our hearts. Uh, help me to help us think about this story and to see uh, your love so clearly demonstrated here. And may this change us this morning, Lord. Amen. Now, this is a long story. Thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for reading it so well, Sylvia. It was awesome. Um, Uh, It's a long story, and you can get lost in the details, and it's quite a wacky story, you know, like someone walking out of the grave. That can be a little weird, right? Um, In previous generations, maybe not so much now, we would have found that quite offensive. Like, how do you, you know, we live in a closed materialistic universe. People don't rise from the dead. Mostly in our culture now, we're a little more comfortable with wacky stuff happening that we don't understand. Um, I think in this world it's possible. But there's lots of stuff going on. Um, And and it's easy to to lose the the wood in in the midst of all the trees. The heart of this story is, uh, we find the heart of this story right towards the end um, when... uh, when the disciples, and we see it in the, what is going on here? When, uh, when the Jews around him, after Jesus is weeping, they said this, see how he loved him, right? And what you need to know is this word here, see, this is actually an imperative. This is a command, okay? Uh, in all the translations, it would have been behold, So the Jews are going, they're looking at what Jesus is doing and how he's engaging with Mary and Martha and with Lazarus and they're seeing his tears and they say, look at how much Jesus loves him. So I think that's the Jews of 2,000 years ago speaking to you and saying, hey, you know, Ian, Kathy, Mark, Helen, I'll pick you out by name, Jenny, Darren, see, Omid, see how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Because you know what? When you see how much Jesus loved him, you'll start to see how much he loves you. And that's going to change your life, isn't it? So uh, what do we see here? The first thing is we we see, well, not the first. We see that this love of Jesus uh, comes in in four ways, or there are four dimensions to it. Firstly, uh, it's a knowledgeable love. I struggled to spell this this morning. Knowledgeable love. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, well, Jesus' love for Lazarus uh, knew the situation of Lazarus's life, didn't he? So when um, when the disciples, when he hears the message that uh, he's sick, what does Jesus 
do? Well, he's not surprised. He's not like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what's going on in Lazarus's life. I don't know what the outcomes are going to be. This has taken me so totally by surprise. What does he do? He says, hmm, this sickness will not end in death. He knows, right? Jesus knows the details of our lives and Jesus knows the outcomes of our lives. It's that kind of a love. I find that comforting because I find, hmm, I find typically it easy to love people when I don't know that much about them. <laughs> don't you? <laughs> oh, the more you get to know people, don't you find that they're harder to love? Those of us who've been married a while are laughing and sort of looking nervously at our partners. <laughs> the more you get to know someone, in fact, you, love can become a profound challenge there. And one of the, the ways we can find one of, the, one of the challenges for us to experience the love of God is we can think that God doesn't really know what's going on in our lives. You know, He doesn't know the depths of our own brokenness. And, uh, he, and, and he's a little surprised. And, and Jesus, no, no, he gets the full picture of Lazarus' life. Uh, God has the full picture of your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And guess what? He actually knows the outcomes of your life. He knows when you're going to die. He knows what sicknesses are going to befall you. He knows what, let me, he knows what sins you're going to commit. Now, you might not like the word sin. It's a theological phrase, quite loaded. Let me say it this way. God knows how selfish and lazy you're going to be. He knows how full of lust you're going to be. He knows how you're going to gossip. He knows how you're going to let yourself down, how you're going to let down those you love. He knows how greedy you are. He knows how you're going to struggle with pride. And he sees all the tragic outcomes of all those bad choices and how that will hurt and affect other people. He knows that about you. And guess what? He still loves you. Ah, that's good news, right? That the love of God is based on knowledge, not on wishful thinking or denial or only uh, a small bit of us. Um, it's very interesting. Right at the get-go, you see, um, Martha says this, Lord, the one you love is sick. He, love, he knows. He knows Lazarus is sick. He loves him. So that's the first thing. It's a knowledgeable love. Uh, the second thing is um, it's a purposeful love. Or perhaps you might also say a wise love. What do I mean by that? Uh, God's love in our lives and his, his mysterious and sometimes opaque interactions with us have a purpose, right? They have a purpose. And that purpose can be hard to discern, but the fact that it's hard to discern doesn't mean that it's not there. Does that make sense? The fact that God's purpose in our lives, even when we're suffering, and even when we can't really understand it, doesn't mean that the purpose isn't there. So uh, what's the purpose of this interaction? What do we see here? Well, uh, the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. He heard this. Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. 
Okay, what's God's purpose in Lazarus' sickness? No, it is for God's glory that, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's this, so that. Here's a purpose clause. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So on either side of this statement of purpose, there's this bracket of love. Just, just so you don't forget, this death that he's going through, this sickness, is so that God might be glorified. And you know, well, that's all good. I guess I can get that because I know you're going to raise him from the dead. But then the story takes a weird twist because Jesus hears this and then he goes, yeah, I'm just going to wait for a couple of days. <laughs> like, he actually makes it worse. That does your head in, doesn't it? I mean, surely God's job in life is to make our lives better and easier and quicker now. Not to make it worse. But, but he, he makes it worse. He sticks around for two more days. He says, you know... Um, He's really, really dead. He waits a couple of days, verse 14. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And he didn't go and heal him. Why? For your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Again, same phrase, same purpose clause. The purposeful, the purposeful love of God has two functions, doesn't it? It's uh, to glorify Jesus and uh, to build our faith in Jesus. <laughs> Makes it worse. But the point of it all is God is going to get the glory and we are going to grow in our faith and our trust in the face of great suffering. Now that's tough. That's tough, right? Um, here's what suffering tends to do to us. I've discovered in my experience, and I read scripture, when we suffer uh, and when we face incredible, incredibly difficult times, it, uh, it reveals what's in our heart and pushes us in one of two directions, doesn't it? The one direction when we suffer is we can, we can look at God, the mystery and, and the seeming absence of God and get angry and bitter with God. Where were you, God, when I was suffering? What is your purpose? I don't believe you love me. I don't believe you're there for me. If you want a great example of this, uh, you read Luke 15, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, also the parable of the older brother. And you see this is a very, in the, in the parable, the young son is the one who's a complete mess and he makes a hash of his life. He goes out and he knows that he screwed it up and then he comes back to God and it's all good. The older brother is the uber-religious dude. He's the guy who sticks at it in the father's business. He works, he works, he does everything that's right. And then he sees that his father loves his son and the, and the older brother goes to his dad, dad, I've been here for you from day one. I've worked. I've never taken a day off. I've been the responsible one. I've been the good one. I've been the religious one. You owe me. And I am totally, totally pissed at you because you owe me and you haven't come through for me and given me what I deserve. Now, listen, suffering will reveal our older brother hearts. That says, you know what, when, when we suffer and, 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 we, and God doesn't come through for us and we go, no, Lord, you should. Man, I need you. I asked for you to come. Why are you waiting two days? That's not good enough. 
I've been in church. I've said my prayers. I've honored my parents. I've even given some money to the church. Occasionally, I care for the poor. I try not to gossip too much. I've served on parish council. I've done all this. Maybe I've even been ordained. I've done everything right, and now I'm suffering. And God, what are you up to? You've given up on me. And don't you? We know people like that. I mean, not here. Just, just there's a bitterness, hardness. Now, suffering can do another thing, right? Can actually, it, it can push you in the direction of Mary and Martha, which is, you know, which is to to trust Jesus. So when Jesus finally turns up, what do they say to him? Jesus, we sent for you and you didn't come. What kind of a God are you? They said, oh, Jesus, you know. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And they still love him. He loves them. They trust him. So that's, that's what suffering can do. It can give us hearts of Mary and Martha to trust Jesus, even when he doesn't show up on demand. I mean, it's terribly hard, like we love. I mean, we really, we really want God, don't we, deep down inside to serve us, to be a little genie. We rub his, you know, a little, little Buddha in the corner. You rub his fat tummy and he pops up and gives you good things. And then we get really annoyed with him when he doesn't do that. Now, now I'm not trivializing suffering with that, but I see that in myself. And I say, no, no. So what's the response? You see, what is the response of Mary and Martha, right? They do two things. They wait and they pray. And then the third thing is they believe. Uh, That's what they do. The response is to wait. Well, actually to pray. Sorry, they pray first, they wait, and then they believe. They send word to Jesus. They talk to Jesus. Uh, prayer, Prayer isn't the last resort. Prayer is the first port of call. That's the thing we should do all the time. Talk to Jesus, you know. Just talk to him all the time. Maybe not out loud. That can freak some people out if you're sort of sitting in a coffee shop having a conversation with Jesus by yourself, you know. But all the time, talk to him about what concerns us, what, what, our, what our struggles are. And then you wait, because I mean, you can't do anything else. <laughs> and you keep talking to him, and then you keep believing. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 8, 38 says... Uh, God works together in all things, or God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's a big verse. I've got to tell you, um, I've been following Jesus for 32 years. Um, I'm increasingly convinced through many years of suffering and decades of vicarious suffering. You know, when you're in church long enough, you connect with everyone else's suffering as well. And, it, it, and then you, you get involved with overseas aid and development work, organizations like IGM, and your heart just gets broken all the time. But the more I go on, the more I'm convinced that God is at work in everything for his greatest glory and my greatest good. I mean, this is an absolute... I, I If you said to me, Mark, how have you come to believe that? I'd go, that's 32 years of suffering. That's, and, and just and waiting and praying and believing. God is at work out of his enormous love to bring about in everything his greatest glory and my greatest good.
Now, do I understand that? You know, I've been here nearly two years. I look out at you and I know many of you, I know some of your heartaches and your losses and your griefs and your pain. I don't say that as a trite thing. Well, I sometimes, it would have been good if God had a different plan, right? I look, I, I'd often think about the first 20 years of my life and I'd go, I wish I'd had a different 20 years to start off with, right? I wish God had been able to shape me in a different way. And I know some of you are like, I wish I'd, you know, wish you had a different diagnosis, wish you had a different life, wish you had a different... But listen, in all of this complexity and confusion and pain and heartache, the truth, the central truth of Christianity is in, God great, in God's great purposeful love for you, he is at work in everything for your greatest good and his greatest glory. I think that's a truth that is profoundly transformative and as we live into it, not easy to believe and not easy to live. But when you do, oh my goodness, it changes everything. The third thing we see about this love of God, uh, and this helps you with the first one, the first two, um, it's a suffering love, right? Because one of the reasons it's hard to believe that God loves you in your suffering and he has a purpose even in your suffering is you think very often that God doesn't understand I mean, you know, what it, you know what it's like when you're really in pain and someone whose life, someone who knows nothing of your pain just offers you trite advice or, you know, just trust God. Like they know nothing of your particular heartache. You know that? I mean, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse uh, in the church and I find some of the things I have heard people say to survivors of sexual abuse, you just want to punch him in the face. You go, you have no friggin' idea of the pain that is inflicted on people. So don't you start giving trite advice, right? And you might feel that with all of our pain, and, and you know, if, if you've had a marriage breakup, um, oh my goodness, I've seen, oh, Christians can be the dumbest people in the world, you know? Like, you have a marriage breakup, and then you hear some of the mind-blowingly stupid things that Christians in the church say to you, and you go, and that's supposed to help how? Apart from show that you're a moron who can't cope with someone's pain? Uh, not always. Sometimes we say wonderfully helpful things. But you never say words that are helpful unless there is a deep empathy and sympathy, unless there is a love that suffers with the other person. You just, they're just trite, empty words. So the wonderful thing about this is we find in the story that there, the, the love of God is a suffering love. How so? Well, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Verse 35, here we go. I just had to flip, flip that in. Jesus wept. And he wept, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Uh, Jesus is, he is, I mean, he's, he's so moved. And he's weeping. And there, he's weeping for Lazarus and for Mary and Martha. This is what caused people to say, see how much he loves him. So because he's moved by it. But have you ever wondered, and I wonder this, have you ever wondered, why is Jesus crying when he knows that he's about to raise him from the dead and flick it all around? Have you ever wondered that? Like, well, Mary, Martha, I'm about to raise him from the dead. Just shut up, won't you? 
That's the equivalent of um, somebody whose marriage is okay saying to someone whose marriage has ended, just trust Jesus, it'll all be all right in the end, you know? That's complete rubbish, right? Uh, I mean, it, at one level, it's true. Yes, Jesus was going to raise Mar- uh, Lazarus from the dead. But he's still, his heart is broken to the point where the Jews go, this weeping of Jesus is a sign of his love. Why? Well, listen. Uh, if you love somebody, no matter how good your life is, if you really love them, you are inextricably connected to them so that if they're in pain, you're in pain. That's what love does. Love actually locks you in to the other person's life so you cannot but share their pain. Uh, those of you who've been parents, you'll know this, won't you? Like, no matter how well your life is going, like, you might just have got that great promotion and things might be awesome for you. But man, if your kid is in pain, you're in pain. You know that in your marriage. No matter how well you're doing, if your partner is suffering, so are you. This is why Jesus weeps. This is at the, because at the heart of, the, of Christianity is this un, almost unbelievable truth that the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, magnificent, transcendent being who spoke all of reality into creation by his breath, the one who is utterly other and over all things, binds himself to us in love and binds himself to our pain in love that God would allow his heart to be broken by the things that break your heart. That's at the center of Christianity. Makes it different to any other religion, right? Certainly different to any materialist, secular view of the world where we're essentially alone in an indifferent universe. Say, no, no, no. We're not alone. We're in a universe with a God of love who has bound himself to us in suffering love. The final dimension of this love, um, and this is where it gets even better. It's a powerful love, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, uh, this is the difference between Jesus and a, a therapist, right? I mean, you can pay a therapist to love you in these ways, right? To be knowledgeable and help you find purpose and to share deep empathy, But here's what no therapist or no parent or no spouse can do. They can't get into your life and undo the root cause of all your pain. They can't actually come in and fix it. But that's what love is. Love, what we want from people who who love us is that they have the power to actually fix it up. And that's why, that's what kids love their parents, right? Because we just have this incredible trust in our parents when we're little. You know, no matter what awful stuff has happened at school or no matter what your big brother's done to you, when, when mum comes home, when dad comes home, it's all going to be okay because they can fix everything. And the, the heart of Christianity says God's love can fix everything. Isn't that good? And that's because that's Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. How many times have I read that at the graveside of people who've died? All the time. That's the greatest verse. I got, Jesus says, though you, though you die, yet you will live. If you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. Like that's the best news ever, isn't it? That God is going to undo everything that makes everything wrong for us. It's a powerful, powerful love.
Wow. I mean, uh, that's worth telling people about. <laughs> I mean, that's worth, that's worth trusting, isn't it? Because what other love like that exists in the world? Where else are you going to go to find this kind of love? Uh, I always think, here's one of the reasons I'm a Christian. Because if this isn't true, what else do I believe? Like, what else is there? Nothing. So, my, you, you, many of you know this. My brother's become a Muslim. Muhammad Leach. Rolls off the tongue. Um, and uh, I kid you not. And... Um, but when I talk to my brother, his experience of God is nothing like this. It's nothing like that. It's this love. And this powerful love. And this, I mean, that gives us hope, doesn't it? Like whatever pain or suffering you are going through or you will go through, it has a use-by date. It's going to be gone. The psalmist says, God collects up all our tears in a bottle. And uh, one day he's going to wipe them all away and they're all going to be made new. We're going to be, it's going to be healed, right? Now, um, how, do you, how do you actually believe that? You know, you can look at Lazarus, but for you and for me, and this is where I come right up against my own inadequacy. How do I, how do I take this from, from the head, like a, a bunch of knowledge? So I, I can see most of you are still awake and you're sort of nodding and you've at least learned the the art through many years of secondary and tertiary education of pretending to be awake and many years faithfully sitting in churches to look like you're listening and maybe you are and maybe you're getting the words and the concepts but how do you get it from here where you oh yeah God loves me to actually wow a lived reality that I've actually sensed it on my heart I felt it I know it well, I want to suggest here's the way and we find it in a very interesting place um, after Jesus has, uh, he's come, he's wept, uh, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. It says this again, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Why is Jesus moved? He's on the verge of undoing death for Lazarus, and he's still so worked up. Why? Well, you've got to read the passage that comes immediately after this one in John 11. Jesus is so worked up and distressed because he knows that the, his act of bringing life to Lazarus is going to set in motion all the events that would lead to him dying. He knows that this act of love on his part to raise Lazarus from the dead is going to cost him his life. That's why he died. The, the text says they, they started a plot to kill him then and there because he'd done this act. They said, we've got to kill him. So for me, how have I come to know this love of God? It is by looking at the cross of Jesus and seeing there his love for me. In the middle of one of the darkest periods of my life, uh, when I was about 20 and I was uh, confronting through the a bunch of people and, and, and the justice system, the guy who'd been at the center of the, the child sex abuse in the church that I'd grown up with. Um, I was back in Cape Town. I'm immersed in this awful, awful darkness um, of cover-ups and pedophilia and just 
horror. I was um, late one night. I was praying on the lounge room floor down in this, you know, in Cape Town, and it's dark. Everyone's asleep, and I'm just praying and I'm sobbing, and I'm saying, "Lord, it just feels like I'm just living in a moral and spiritual sewer of evil and brokenness and pain." And God gave me a vision, and uh, the vision was like there's a like this world, like, like I'm in this great big ball of, uh, of aluminium foil and no light is coming in. And everything around me is just, it's just completely encased in aluminium foil. And then God comes with, his, with a nail and he just, you know, he cuts one line down in the foil and bright light from outside breaks in. And then he cuts another line. And in the shape of a cross, the light of God breaks in and I'm so that's where the love is found. That's where, the, that's where the life is. You know, do you know that? I don't know what you're going through, what you've been through, what you'll go through. But I know this, that knowing the love of God, this uh, knowledgeable, purposeful, suffering, powerful love that breaks into our lives and ends death and brings us hope, this is at the center of everything. Bible says that it's the job of the Holy Spirit to make that love real in our hearts. So I'm going to pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to make that real. I'm at the end of my words. I've used my gifts of teaching and rhetoric to do the best I can. Now it's up to God. Now it's up to you. Let's pray. Our great God, uh, we want to pause and acknowledge how desperately each of us need to know your love in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will uh, come and make this love real to each of us. Help us know that you haven't abandoned us. That our suffering and pain is not pointless. Help us know that you know you know you know our joys and you know our tears you know our hopes and you know our fears you know our goings out and you know our coming in you know when we're born and you know when it's going to be our time to go home to be with you and in all of that you are with us to love us to suffer with us to redeem us and to heal us. Come, Holy Spirit. Take these truths and make them real in our hearts. sing a song to wrap up and while we sing if you'd like to 
If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, if God, if you're, if you're battling with stuff and you just want, you just need God's spirit to make this love real and for whatever it is, if you want prayer, uh, there'll be some people down here, my left and your right, who'd love to pray with you. You can pray with the people next to you. There's no magic in getting prayer from someone down the front, but it can help. So let's, um, let's continue to worship God and give him our hearts, give him our lives. Allow him to work in our lives now as we sing to him. This is our offertory song here. Yeah, this 